Merry Christmas and welcome to Christ Central. My name is Owen. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. So whether you're joining us on site or online, thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us today. Well, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke together, and we've been calling the series Following Jesus Through the Book of Luke. And that's because we've been following Jesus around as he moves through Luke. And we've been paying attention to what he did and to what he said. And as we watch Jesus in action, and as we listen to him speak and teach, it is my prayer that we would find Jesus captivating and compelling, and that we would be made more certain of the, things that we, uh, of the things that we believe as followers of Jesus. That Jesus really is the Son of God. That he really is the promised Messiah. That he really is the Savior of the world. And that he really is worth following. That there's nothing better or greater or more important than to follow Jesus, even when it's hard, even during a pandemic. <clears throat> so the title of today's sermon is The Baby Jesus Presented at the temple. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Now, we're not going to read what is considered the traditional Christmas text from uh, the Gospel of Luke, which would be chapter 2, verses 1 to 21, which recounts for us how the angels uh, appear to the shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock and announcing to them the birth of Jesus Christ, and then how they went to Bethlehem and found the baby lying in a manger just as they had been told by the angels. Uh, since I already preached on that text earlier this year in the earlier part of the sermon series, I'm not going to preach on it today. Today, for Christmas Sunday, I'm going to preach on the verses that follow immediately after those verses, from verse 22 to 40. Our story that we're about to read takes place about 40 days after the birth of Jesus. So Jesus is still a baby, and on Christmas Sunday, everybody wants to hear a story about the baby Jesus, and we're going to do that. Our story today is not very well known. In fact, Luke is the only gospel writer that includes this episode in his gospel. But this is a very important event in the life of Jesus because it will help us to better understand the purpose of Christmas, the purpose for which Jesus came into the world. You see, from the very beginning of his life, from day 40 of his life, it's going to be very clear to us that Jesus came to save the world and to do it at the cost of his own life. And so, people of God, this is the word of our God. Would you please give it your careful attention? And we're going to read from verse 22 to 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother were uh, marveled at what was said about him. And Simon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there is a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when, from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So here's the outline for today's sermon. First, the presentation of Jesus. Second, the testimony of Simeon. And third, the testimony of Anna. First, the presentation of Jesus. So Mary and Joseph came to the temple to do two things. First, to offer the necessary sacrifices for Mary's purification. And second, they came to present and to dedicate their firstborn son to the Lord. Now, this was expected of every good law-keeping Jewish couple to do. This was not special. This was not out of the ordinary. This was expected and ordinary. It would be like Christian parents presenting their covenant children for baptism. It is ordinary. It is expected. And as you saw in the baptism video today, uh, uh, earlier in the service, uh, during this pandemic, couples were having children. They were having babies, and they were presenting them for baptism and dedicating them to the Lord. You see, even during this pandemic, when we've been unable to gather together as a church, God has been growing our church family by giving us covenant children. And it was such a joy for me and for some of our staff to visit uh, families in their homes and to hold, well, I wasn't able to hold their babies, but to see their babies and to baptize them and to dedicate them to the Lord. And, um, you know, I'll be honest, I miss hearing the giggles and the laughter and even the crying of children at church. And I can't wait until the children can be back in the building and run around and make a whole lot of noise because where there's noise, there is life. And I can't, I miss the kids of our church. So it was an ordinary and expected thing for Joseph and Mary to be at the temple, to offer sacrifices for Mary's purification and at the same time to dedicate their firstborn son to the Lord. But Luke gives us a very small, but a very important and significant detail in his story. And that's noteworthy. According to verse 24, they offered a pair of turtle doves as a sacrifice for Mary's purification. Now, why is that little detail so important and so significant? It's because that little detail tells us so much about the gospel and about the nature of the kingdom of God. Let me explain. 
You see, according to Levitical law, the mother of a male infant was unclean for seven days after birth, and then she was required to stay at home for another 33 days, abstaining, avoiding contact with anyone in any holy place. So the total duration of her uncleanness and self-quarantine was 40 days. And after 40 days, Mary and Joseph went to the temple so that Mary, or so that they could offer the sacrifices for Mary's purification so that her sins could be, uh, could be atoned for and so that she could be made clean. Now listen to this. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6, or, six and 8, 6 or 8, gives us instructions, specific instructions for the purification and the cleansing of mothers after giving birth. It says this. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either a male or female. And, listen to this, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So according to Levitical law, Mary was to offer a lamb for a burnt offering and a turtle dove for a sin offering, so that she might be forgiven of her sins and be made clean. But if she couldn't afford a lamb, then she was to offer two turtle doves, one for a burnt offering and one for a sin offering. Mary offered two turtle doves because they couldn't afford a lamb because they were poor. Jesus was born into a poor family to parents who were so poor that they couldn't afford to buy a lamb to offer to God as a sacrifice. Now, why is that so important? Why is that so significant? You see, Jesus, by being born into a poor family and by being poor himself for the entire duration of his life on earth, powerfully and beautifully demonstrates that the poor are welcomed and included in the kingdom of God. You see, in this world, there are so many places where the poor are excluded, where they are not welcomed. The poor are excluded from fancy restaurants. The poor are excluded from luxurious golf clubs. The poor are excluded from wealthy neighborhoods that, that, have, that, that contain multi-million dollar homes. You see, there are so many places in this world where the poor are excluded because they can't afford to be there. And let's be honest, the poor are not just excluded from those places, they're also unwelcomed in those places. You see, people who are able to frequent those kinds of places don't like it when a poor person wanders in, and they're usually escorted out. But do you know where the poor are never excluded, where the poor are always welcomed, and where the poor will never be escorted out? the kingdom of God. 
they are never excluded from the kingdom of God. They are always welcomed in the kingdom of God, and they will never be escorted out of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus welcomes and includes the poor into his kingdom and into his family. And Jesus powerfully and beautifully demonstrated that by being born into a financially poor family and by living a financially poor life himself while he lived on earth. I want you to think about this. Jesus never owned a house during a time when people owned houses. Jesus said that he didn't even have a, a, a place to lay his head. Jesus didn't have a steady income. Did you know that? During his earthly ministry, it was women who supported him. Charitable donations so that he could do his work on earth. And when Jesus died, he died with nothing no possessions, no savings, nothing. Even the clothes on his back were taken from him and gambled away by Roman soldiers. He died naked with absolutely nothing when it comes to worldly goods and possessions. And think about this. Even the cave that he was buried in, he didn't own. He was buried in someone else's grave. You see, from an earthly perspective, if Jesus uh, were to have come in our day, Jesus would have more in common with the poor immigrant day worker that lives in a rundown apartment than he would with rich people with well-paying jobs, nice houses, and multiple cars. Or let me put it this way, Christ Central. Jesus would have more in common with the people who come to receive a holiday basket than with the people who give away holiday baskets. And it's good and helpful for us to remember that and to think about that sometimes, that we worship and follow a Savior that was financially and materially poor. Let me ask you, when was the last time you followed a poor person? When was the last time you looked to a poor person for wisdom and guidance? Probably not very often. But we worship a Savior who was poor. Now, that does not mean that the rich are excluded or not welcomed in the kingdom of God. But the rich must remember this. If you're rich, your money will not get you into the kingdom of God the way your money can get you into all those other places that you're used to getting into fancy restaurants and golf clubs. Now, let's be honest. If you're rich, then you're used to having your money get you into whatever place that you want to get into. But your money will not get you into the kingdom of God. You see, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, then you have to humble yourself and you have to confess that you're spiritually poor, that you're a sinner, that you can't save yourself and you need Jesus to save you. In other words, you have to become a beggar and you have to beg Jesus to save you. But for rich people, it's hard to beg, isn't it? So here's the thing with the kingdom of God. The good news for the poor is that your lack of money doesn't exclude you. Nothing can ever exclude you from the kingdom of God. Not your financial status, not your social status, not the color of your skin, not anything. And the bad news for the rich is that your abundance of money doesn't get you in the way your money gets you into all those other places in life. You see, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, all you have to do is humble yourself and trust Jesus to save you. 
your money, your social status, your ethnicity, your race are all non-factors when it comes to getting into the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, the rich and the poor are on equal footing. There is no higher class, there is no lower class in the kingdom of God like there is in the world. All are equal as redeemed image bearers of God, and all are brothers and sisters in the family of God. You see, in the kingdom of God, everyone is equally loved, equally valued, and equally treasured by God. No matter the size of your bank account, no matter the zip code that you live in, no matter the kind of work that you do, and no matter the color of your skin. You see, in this world, not all are equally loved, valued, and treasured. And that should break our hearts. But in the kingdom of God, all will be equal, and all will be equally loved. But for now, as we live in this fallen and heartbreaking world where there is so much inequality, we work for those things that will be true when Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom in fullness, glory, and power. Next, let's talk about the testimony of Simeon. In verses 25 and 26, we're introduced to Simeon. And Simeon is presented to us by Luke as a reliable witness so that we might believe his testimony. And this is how Luke described Simeon. First, Simeon was righteous. That means that Simeon treated people rightly and justly. He treated his neighbors in a loving, just, and fair way. He was a righteous man. Simeon was also devout. That means Simeon believed God and believed all the promises of God. He waited for the consolation of Israel, which was another way of saying that he waited for the coming of the Messiah that God has promised. He was a believing man. Third, Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would see the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ, before he died. And fourth, Simeon was in the temple. You see, the temple was the central place where all the redemptive activities of God happened. And it is in the temple that Simeon would behold Jesus and lift up Jesus in his hands and and say that everything that the temple pointed to, everything that the temple was promising to do would finally be fulfilled in this baby boy, Jesus. By describing Simeon as righteous, devout, filled with the Holy Spirit, and located in the temple, Luke was telling us that Simeon uh, was a man whose testimony we can and should believe. In fact, Simeon uh, personified what faithful and expectant Israel was supposed to be. Simeon's reception of the baby Jesus was supposed to be the way that all faithful, believing Jews were supposed to receive Jesus the way we are all supposed to receive the baby Jesus. And when Simeon saw the baby Jesus, he instantly recognized that the promise of God that he had been waiting for his whole life had finally come true. And so in verse 29, Simeon blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon said that he can finally die in peace because he has seen God's salvation. He has seen the one who is the Messiah that will save the world. Now this baby boy that Simeon was holding in his arm 
was going to be the Savior, not just of Israel, but for the whole world. You see, he was going to be the Savior of both Jews and Gentiles. For the Jews, there were really only two types of people in the world, right? There were Jews, and there were non-Jews. A Gentile was a non-Jew. And so this baby Jesus is coming to be the Savior of the whole world for both Jews and Gentiles. And that means that Jesus is a Savior not only for the nation of Israel, but for every nation, for every race of people, for every ethnicity. In fact, um, in in the beautiful words of Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, it says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now after his blessing, Simeon also gave a prophecy in verses 34 and 35. And Simeon said to Mary, his mother, that her baby boy was appointed for the fall of and rising of many in Israel. Now, what does that mean? That Jesus will be the cause for people either to fall or to rise. You see, friends, in the end, at the end of human history, humanity will be divided into two groups. And the dividing line that will be drawn between men and women is not Jews and Gentiles. It's not the rich and the poor. It's not males and females. It's not the powerful and the powerless or anything like that. The dividing line that will be drawn right down humanity will be this, how people respond to Jesus. The dividing line will be between those who receive Jesus as Messiah and those who reject Jesus as Messiah. And those who believe and receive Jesus as Messiah will rise And those who disbelieve and reject Jesus as Messiah, they will fall. You see, as you listen to Jesus through the book of Luke, especially as you listen to his claims about who he is, claiming not only to be the Messiah, but claiming to be the Son of God, there's only really two ways that you can respond to Jesus. The first way you can respond, or the first option, is to reject Jesus as either a liar or a lunatic. You see, if Jesus claimed to be God, but he knew that he actually wasn't God, then he would be a liar, and you have to reject liars. Or if Jesus claimed to be God and actually believed that he was God when he was not God, then he's a lunatic. You see, either way, you have to reject Jesus either as a liar or a lunatic. Or the other way that you can respond to Jesus is to receive him as Lord. You see, if Jesus really was who he claimed to be, the Son of God come in human flesh, if he really is and if he really was the Messiah, then the only reasonable response would be to receive him and to worship him. You see, if Jesus really was who he said he was, then that changes everything. You see, friends, Jesus was not just a great miracle worker or a wise teacher that you can respect and admire. Listen, Jesus is not someone you admire. Jesus is someone you worship. Big difference. So there are really only two ways that you can respond to Jesus and to his claims. If you believe that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic, 
then you have to reject him. But if you believe that Jesus was the Lord, then you have to fall down and worship him. You see, friends, your response to Jesus determines whether you rise or fall. Those who reject Jesus will fall, and those who receive Jesus will rise. Before I go any further, let me ask you, I want you to ask yourself this question. What group do I belong to? Am I in the group that will fall, or am I in the group that will rise? Your response to Jesus determines which group you belong to. And Simeon also prophesied that Jesus would be opposed and that a sword would pierce through Mary's soul in verses 34 and 35. Now, this prophecy of Simeon prepares us for the conflict and the opposition that Jesus will face from the religious leaders throughout his ministry. And this conflict and this opposition will culminate, come to a climax, when they put Jesus to death on a cross. And it is the sight of watching her son being tortured and crucified 33 years later that will be a sword that will go right through Mary's heart. And here, my friends, we get a hint of what salvation will cost. What will it cost for salvation and redemption to come to the world? What will it truly cost for Mary to have her sins forgiven? and to be made clean? Would it really be the sacrifice of a turtle dove that would atone for Mary's sin? You see, on that day at the temple, Mary was unable to present a lamb for her offering. But one day, about 33 years later, Mary would have to present her son as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Little did Mary know that the son that she presented on that day was the Messiah who would make true atonement for her sins. See, it would not be a lamb or a turtle dove that would take away her sins. It would be her son. Now, the cost of bringing salvation and the forgiveness of sins to the world would be like a sword that would go right through Mary's heart. You see... That sword would go through Mary's heart when her son would be offered as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. As Mary sees the nails go through the hands and feet of her son, as Mary sees the spear go through his side, a sword will go through her own heart. But the sword that went through Mary's heart was nothing compared to the sword that went through the heart of God the Father. The pain and anguish the mother of Jesus experienced was just a glimpse of the infinitely worse pain and anguish that the father of Jesus will experience. And yet for this very purpose, the father sent his son, that his son might save his people by dying for them, by taking their judgment for them. And John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God at the cost of his own son. For us and for our salvation, 
the Father sent the Son. For us and for our salvation, the Father was willing to have a sword go through his own heart. For us and for our salvation, both the Father and the Son suffered. The Son of God suffered as he had nails driven through his hands and his feet. And God the Father suffered as he had a sword driven through his own heart. Both the Father and the Son demonstrate their love for us in what they were willing to suffer for us and for our salvation. Church family, this Christmas, I want you to see the great love of your triune God. See how much God the Father loves you as he sent his Son for you. See how much God the Son loves you as he willingly came for you to willingly lay down his life for you. And see how much God the Holy Spirit loves you as he gives you the faith to see and to behold the love of the Father and of the Son for you. Lastly, and very briefly, let's consider the testimony of Anna. As we've learned, Luke is very fond of male and female pairs, isn't he? And again, uh, Luke presents Anna now to pair with Simeon. According to verse 36, Anna was a prophetess. She had been married for seven years, and then her husband died, and then she remained a widow for the rest of her life, and she was 84 years old. Now she was an old woman. And Anna, this old woman, was always at the temple, worshiping, fasting, and praying day and night. And Anna's fasting was an expression of her hope as she waited for the redemption of Jerusalem, as she waited for the Messiah to come to renew and to restore the world that was so broken. And when Anna saw the baby Jesus, she too recognized that he was God's promised Messiah, and she gave thanks to God, and she was talking about Jesus to everyone who was waiting for the hope of redemption. So what? What's the takeaway for today? Listen, this is so important. Luke presents both Simeon and Anna as believable and trustworthy witnesses, and he wants us to believe their testimonies. And today, I want you to do what Luke wants you to do. He wants you to believe Simeon. He wants you to believe Anna. He wants you to listen to their testimony about Jesus and to believe them. He wants you to believe Simeon and Anna when they say that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. He wants you to believe that this Messiah came to save the world and to save you at the cost of his own life. Luke wants you to receive Jesus the way Simeon and Anna received Jesus with joy, with thanksgiving, with faith. I know at the end of the day, humanity will be divided into two groups. There will be the group that falls, and there will be the group that rises. Those who reject Jesus will fall, but those who receive Jesus will rise. And today, I want you to receive Jesus and rise to eternal life. That's what I want for you as your pastor today. That's what I want most for you, for all of you who are listening today. You see, so on this Christmas Sunday, I ask you again what is literally the most important question that you could ever ask yourself. What group do I belong to? Do I belong to the group that will rise? Or do I belong to the group that will fall? Your response to Jesus determines what group you belong to today. 
So as your pastor and as your friend, I want you to receive Jesus as Messiah, and I want you to be in that group that will rise and live forever in the kingdom of God. Amen? May everyone today, whether you're in this room or watching at home, today would you receive Jesus as Messiah? Would you believe in him? And would you rise to everlasting life? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you would love us so much that you would send your son Jesus, even sending him to the cross, knowing that's going to send a sword right through your own heart. But you did that for us because that's how much you love us. And we thank you, Jesus, for coming and for willingly going to the cross, for willingly laying down your life for us and to endure death and the wrath of God for our sins so that we might be saved. So we thank you, Son of God, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing these things to us that we might know today that we're loved by both the Father and the Son, that both the Father and the Son paid such a heavy price to save us from our sins. This Christmas, fill our hearts with joy and gratitude, not because of all the presents under a tree, but because of Jesus, the greatest present that we have ever received. In his name we pray, amen.